The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Good morning. Welcome to Spirit Mornings. I'm Bruce McGregor with... Chris McGregor. And Chris, he's back. Yes, he is. Mike Aquilina, author of The Mass of the Early Christians. Several other books, too, on the early church, all published through our Sunday Visitor. Of course, we have to talk about the Grail Code. I'll let Chris talk about Mike's site here in just a moment for all you bloggers out there. Mike, Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and we do encourage you to visit that website, www.salvationhistory.com. Mike, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Oh, it's so good to be back. Thanks for having me. You bet. Back like sunshine on a glorious day. Mike <laughs> Aquilina. That's the way we have to think in these these uh, January days. The okay. doldrums of January. I think that about you any day. <laughs> and when I visit thefathersofthechurch.com, you have to visit it. It is one of the best blogs out there. Not only is it informative, it's funny, it is inspirational. I pick it as the number one. Thank you. Boy, you made my day. There you go. Bruce just simply calls it the Mac Daddy of websites. Yeah, really. (laughs) Yeah, I think what's so wonderful about it is some blogs you get images of the person's personality who is moderating the blog. And to have Mike Aquilina with his balanced, enthusiastic, joy-filled look at life and at history, I just, that's, that's worth your time and effort. Well, thanks, and I'm, I'm really glad my mother's paying you all that money to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only sincere. By the way, we're down behind, we're behind one check, so. <laughs> <laughs> Let her know. Yeah, you might want to have a talk with her. No, 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 no. <laughs> People know when they listen here that we're not going to steer them wrong, and <laughs> we really mean it. And today we wanted to have you here. We're not discussing a father of the church, but we're talking about someone whose life inspired so many she was a girl, oh, just yeah. a little girl, St. Agnes of Rome, who died in 304 A.D. when she was probably 12 or 13 years old. My goodness. And, and yet in that short, that short span of life, she became one of the most famous people in the world, especially in the Christian world. And she became really uh, an, a, a, a person venerated by many of the Church Fathers. The, one of the mo- remarkable things about St. Agnes is that her life is so well attested by so many of the Church Fathers so soon after her martyrdom. It's an amazing thing. We find her in St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, Prudentius, St. Damasus, and the Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor, built a basilica over her grave shortly, uh, shortly after her death. So her life is very well attested. What I think is so cool about her is that she get so little credit, but she really did change the course of history, I think. So many people died as martyrs of the Church in those early years. What was it about St. Agnes that was so special? Well, she was a high-profile case, for one thing. She came from a noble family in Rome. She was a young girl, strikingly pretty. She had long blonde hair. And you have to understand kind of the dynamic of what was going on among the nobility in Rome at that time. The pagan families did not keep their female offspring, ordinarily, or they didn't keep too many of them. So there was a real shortage of of women going on. Abortion was very common. Infanticide was very common among the pagans. There was a real shortage of women. Now, if you're a member of the nobility, 
your your marriage options are even more severely limited because you're not going to marry outside of your class. So here was this beautiful little girl from a noble family approaching the, the marriageable age, mm-hmm. uh, which was maybe 14 years old, 13 years old. And it's time for her parents to arrange an engagement. So, so naturally, she has many suitors coming around. And, you know, they're, they're, they're pressing their suit with her parents. And Agnes says no. Uh, she decided that she was going to consecrate her virginity to God. She was going to take vows, essentially, and live as what we might call a nun today. We have consecrated virgins today, too, who are living in the middle of the world. Mm-hmm. So this is a very high-profile case. It got a lot of notice, even in its own time. And all of this is taking place amid the most ruthless and sweeping persecution of the Christian Church in the ancient world. Were her parents Christians? We don't know for sure, but most of the early accounts seem to assume that her parents were Christian and that she was raised a Christian, because she seems very knowledgeable of the faith, and her faith was very deep for such a little girl. So it's likely that she she got good formation at home. Who would have brought a cause against her then, the suitors possibly, because she was taking herself essentially off the market. market. And this is something that happened um, very often in the early church. We have so many records of female martyrs, and one of the reasons is because uh, whenever uh, one of these suitors got jilted, (laughs) they'd bring a case against Mm. the woman. They'd have people spy on her and, and get something damaging, usually, you know, that Christianity is a, is a crime that's punishable by death, and then you can, you can get even, so to speak. Mm. And this happened fairly often. It happened even with married couples. If a man wanted to put his wife away, if he wanted to, to get rid of her uh, for any reason, they had an argument and they wanted to split up, he could just denounce her for her Christianity, and she would be tried. But if there was ample evidence, then she was pretty much a goner. So women were very vulnerable. Female Christians were very vulnerable to denunciations like this to the work of the spies, because uh, private investigators, that was a big business in Rome, because this is how families got even with one another. It wasn't a pretty culture. No, no, uh, not at all. But you can see that part of what made the church attractive, you know, was the presence of so many, so many females, so many young girls and so many women, because that just wasn't the case in the Roman culture at large, because these girls were being killed shortly after birth, or they weren't living to adulthood because they weren't treated well. A lot of times, Mike, it's, I think it's, it's really relevant that we're talking about it, Agnes now, given that we're about to look at life, celebrate life, and the right to life. We think somehow that maybe that's an issue, abortion is something that is common to our modern times. But as you point out, this is something that's been occurring for thousands of years. Now, abortion was a common practice in the Roman Empire. It often killed the women who underwent it. Infanticide was common, too, and that's something that we seem to be sliding into now, mm-hmm. that defective offspring and female offspring were, um, were put away because they, they, just, they just weren't useful for the family. They weren't going to be uh, producers. They were going to be just consumers, and they'd be a drain on the family's resources. So they weren't really worthy of life in the view of the Romans. So, so they, were often, they were often killed on the, on the day of their birth. I have heard in other accounts that they were actually taken to the junk heap 
mm-hmm. essentially, and just left there. There were two ways of doing it. Uh, usually the Roman midwives were trained in drowning the babies. Oh. That's oh, one way it could happen. But, but back up. You know, the way, what usually happened was the, the mother gave birth in a birthing chair mm-hmm. at home, attended by a midwife. And then the midwife would place the baby on the floor and call the, the, the husband in. And if the husband didn't want the baby for whatever reason, all he would do is not pick the baby up. He would choose not to pick the baby up. You know, you hear about a father raising up a child. Yeah. Well, that's where the phrase came from. Because the father, if the father wanted the child, he would raise up the child from the floor. But if the father didn't want the child, he could just leave. Leave the room, and then the child was essentially declared a non-person. And the midwife could either drown the child immediately or leave the child on the, the garbage heap at the edge of town where the animals would, would feast on the child. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and it was from the Romans we got the, t- the term barbarians for other cultures, and I have to wonder right. who, what was the more barbaric be- behavior. Well, it, you know, in this, it, it's, it's, it's so significant that the Feast of St. Agnes falls every year on the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade court decision, you know, that just gave free license to abortion in the United States of America, because we have to contemplate what it means to live in a culture of death, and, and Agnes certainly was, was witness to that in so many ways, what it does to, to women and girls, what it does to the idea of purity and marriage, and just all human relations, all human trust breaks down if we treat life so cheaply. Agnes is such a great figure because she wanted to give her virginity to God, and she was eager to die as a martyr. So when she was denounced, she was brought before a tribunal. Mm-hmm. She was threatened, and, and she, wasn't, she wasn't at all phased by their threats. So they showed her the instruments of torture that could be used against her. And that, that's usually enough. People look at the instruments of torture. And, oh, yeah. And that's scary, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'd how I'd come through such an ordeal. I pray that I'd come through it faithfully, but but boy, it's a scary thing to look on some of these things. You have to remember that the Romans were geniuses at devising torture. Yeah. This is this is something they excelled in. And she looked upon them, and she just wasn't cowed. So the judge thought he was going to do something clever and say, "Well, then she would be condemned to live in a brothel." Hmm. And so he turned her over that way, had her stripped and put in a square, and people were so ashamed that they couldn't look upon her, and they turned away except for one man who decided he would be the one to treat her rudely. Mm-hmm. And he approached, and he was blinded by a light and struck down. And this is another incident that's well attested. And he was taken away by his friends at the prayer of Agnes herself that caused his sight to return, and he was healed. The, the judge you know, gave up his patience and condemned her to die. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the accounts differ in the details, but it's, it's likely that she um, brought to the stake, and uh, if that didn't work, there, there are different, different accounts of it, but she seems to have been struck by a sword as well. Mm. Oh, dear. Her, her relics are preserved in Rome to this day, and when we're in Rome, we can go in and visit the, the church dedicated to her on the beautiful Piazza Navona, where her skull is exposed for veneration. Wow. I, I took my daughter, Mary Agnes, there um, when I was in Rome a few years ago. It's a beautiful little church, and, um, and it, it really um, shows, shows the, uh, the great love that, that Christians have had for Agnes down through the ages, you know, not only in the ancient church, but in the medieval church. And, 
and in the Renaissance and, and, and even down to today. Agnes is, is beloved in Rome. She's remembered in the first Eucharistic prayer, and there are actually two churches dedicated to her honor in Rome, one at her tomb and one at the site of her martyrdom. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, and, and again, she's just someone who, who was so lovely in every way that, um, that, that, it made, that she made an impression on people. One historian has said that he believes that the martyrdom of St. Agnes was the turning point for Christians. It was the turning point in the sense that um, the Romans themselves were so repulsed by what happened to this innocent little girl, this beautiful little girl. They were shocked by their own behavior. Mm -hmm. They had crossed a line, and... And it might have been the tipping point in favor of the Christians, that at that point public opinion began to turn in favor of the Christians. They began to get more sympathy from the pagan Romans mm -hmm. than they had had before, because the Romans recognized that they themselves had crossed the line, and, uh, and, and they were going into a place they just did not want to go. Wow. What a witness. And for her parents to have to watch this happening to their daughter, at if not for her father, at least her mother. Right. Well, it said it, it said that her uh, her sister followed her too in mm. martyrdom uh, eventually, and uh, and is buried in Rome as well. There are those who might wonder why would you w uh, welcome martyrdom. It reminds me a little bit, I'm jumping ahead thousand years or more, to St. Clair, who gave up the opportunity to be a lady of nobility because the lifestyle and what they would be entering into was so countered their Christian experience that they would rather live in poverty and exiled yeah, than, sure. to, than to be. And the idea that I would rather enter into the heavenly realm with Christ than to have to bend towards the culture's demands on me. That's right, and and live in a place where um, gossip was the norm, where where your standing in the world really counted for something, and, mm -hmm. uh, and and not so much your standing in the eyes of God. There's a way to do it well, and there were great saints among the nobility in antiquity, but it is a, a, a better way to go the way Agnes was called, to first to consecrate her virginity to God, and then to consecrate her entire life to God in a single act of martyrdom. Uh, all of the ancient martyrs, who have left any kind of testimony from the time of St. Ignatius of Antioch, and even before Ignatius of Antioch, back to St. Paul in the New Testament, they've looked upon their own martyrdom in Eucharistic terms. Mm -hmm. They learned martyrdom. They learned the spirit of martyrdom from Christ himself in the Eucharist. Christ gave himself in such a humble and complete way to be given as food that the martyrs of the ancient church brought this up again and again. Saint Ignatius said, "I'm I'm going to be ground ground like like wheat in the teeth of lions to be to be made pure bread for Christ." And Saint Paul said he's being poured out like a libation, poured out like a chalice. This was the common refrain, refrain in the in the testimony of the early martyrs. They they always saw their martyrdom as a kind of Eucharist. And I'm it, we, even though we don't have the testimony from Saint Agnes. I'm sure that's the way she taught it, too. She had learned martyrdom from the Master at the Eucharist. I think we need to let people know the Latin translation for Agnes. Oh, it means lamb. It means lamb. And uh, it always brings a smile to my face because uh, a dear friend of mine, Father Ronald Lawler, who was one of, one of the great moral theologians of the last century, 
he always used to love that name, and uh, and he was so happy that our daughter Mary Agnes bore the name, and he used to call her his little lamb. Mm. Uh, so uh, so it always brings a smile to my face. Proud She's Papa. often depicted in artwork uh, holding a lamb in one one hand and holding the palm, which is a sign of victory, a, a palm leaf a sign of victory, because martyrdom was seen as a victory over the world. It's one of those ironic uh, Christian touches that, that the person who, is, who seems to be utterly defeated, utterly crushed, is in fact utterly victorious, because they've conquered as Christ conquered. Right. And that would seem to be doubly true in Agnes's case, because uh, her death appeared to, like you said before, turn a corner with a lot of the pagan Romans and how they viewed Christians and, uh, and these horrible deaths that, that they were facing, willingly. Right. We, we can be sure that it inspired a lot of, a lot of conversions. First of all, among the onlookers, uh, people would have seen, here's a, a little girl who could, who could have such courage. She had something to die for which meant that she had something to live for. Mm-hmm. And so many people then and now go through their days feeling like they have nothing to live for, and they, they long for that. So when there's a public witness of it, you know, like the, like the trial of, of, uh, of Agnes and her public t- testimony or public torture, people say, you know, I want what that little girl has. I want to live for something. And we can be sure that a lot of conversions followed. Tertullian, the North African Christian from the, um, from the third century, said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So you know that Agnes's blood really brought about a lot of conversions in Rome and far beyond Rome, because St. Jerome, writing just a couple of generations later, said there's not a place on earth where people don't sing her praises. So mm. she, was, she was known the world over. She, was, she had achieved this kind of celebrity that other people die trying to achieve by worldly means, but she had done it by, by the, the, the most spiritual and, and holy means possible. And just because she lived 1,800 years ago doesn't mean that she isn't still an outstanding example for all those 12- and 13-year-olds who are listening to you right now, Mike, who are on their way to school and in the car with their parents, and because... For their, for them in their lives today, the culture is asking them to do a lot of things that they know deep down inside of their heart is wrong, mm-hmm. and they, they don't want to do that. You're absolutely right, and and I think it's for that reason that about a hundred years ago she was named the patroness of Girl Scouts. Mm, very good. Young girls in general. Agnes is a great patroness. She's a great model. She's a great intercessor. Constantine's daughter uh, contracted leprosy. This is, this is another thing that's very well documented. And she prayed through the intercession of St. Agnes at the tomb of St. Agnes. And, uh, and that's what, what, what tied the, the imperial family to the memory of St. Agnes so early, because this is as soon as Christianity was legalized. So that, that she was cured instantly, and, uh, and she's the one who had the, the basilica built to St. Agnes's memory. And again, I'm looking forward to just a couple months from now when we'll be able to, uh, to, uh, to visit her grave and, and pray for her intercession for all the girls of our country. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it on so many levels. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. But that's just another great one. Yes. All right, well, Mike, we want to thank you so much for uh, being with us again today and uh, imparting uh, the story of yet another wonderful saint in the Catholic Church. We can learn so much from so many 
but I think the virtue of St. Agnes uh, definitely stands uh, front and center on so many levels. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's been a joy, and I, I hope she's going to be watching over us today and uh, in all the days of our lives. I hope so, too, and I, I really applaud you for going off to Washington to march in what the media, you'll be lucky if you see one media camera. <laughs> I, I noticed that last year. That it's like, where is the media when you have hundreds of thousands of people? Well, they were following the six uh, pro-abortion people standing so, on the Capitol steps. It as you, happens that way. Yep. It, it's funny, uh, but 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 it is a it is a powerful witness for those who go to see those crowds. It's mm-hmm. just amazing, many, many thousands of people, mm-hmm. and it it shuts down Washington for a day. There's no way to get to get through in any kind of vehicular traffic. There's uh, there's just um, there's just no way you can get around these crowds in the subway or um, or or wherever you go. So it is a powerful witness, I think, for the people who are there. All right, again, Mike, thanks so much. We appreciate it. God bless you for all you do for uh, everyone, and especially here for our ministry at KVSS. We love having you on board. Thanks. Hope to be back soon.